Welcome to Off Code, the show where we ignore the cultural codes and have real and intriguing conversations regarding the Black community and ways we can move forward to human flourishing. Hello and welcome to another episode of Off Code. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Kevin Briggins, and we have another great show for you guys today. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting to this topic. It's a really um, important topic that is dear to both of our hearts as we kind of seen this um, cycle kind of happen over and over again. So I'm really looking forward to getting into this topic today. Yeah, looking at Black trauma, what is the source of it? Is it something that's real? Black storytelling, does our storytelling um, precede our trauma? Is it maybe a form of like a secondary trauma? But let's start with a video that actually Krista found and sent to us. And then we can talk about that video and some of the impacts that come when we do things like our, what are seen in this video. We actually have a line that we do at our house. We practice this thing. What is it? I'm Ariel Sky Williams. I'm eight years old. I'm unarmed and I have nothing that will hurt you. It's just kind of a thing we practice at our house. There are great police officers out there. There's also some police officers who are not so good. And my fear is that you run across one of those bad ones. For some reason, people of color have always been a target by the police. Before they became a policeman, they were a person. And that person took all their ideas and all their thoughts and all their prejudice into their job. Why, why would a police officer assume that you did something bad? Maybe because of my skin color. I remember being put in handcuffs for something that had nothing to do with me. I was literally walking in the mall. Cops slammed me on the ground, busted my lip, chipped my tooth. That actually made me really mad. How about the time they pulled us over with me in the car and arrested me and left all of you guys sitting in the car and nobody knew how to drive on the side of the road because the bumper on the car was kind of hanging off? No. You know, we live in Piala. There's people that don't even have a bumper on their car. My rear brake light wasn't working, and I got to my destination and they were working. I was about your age, actually. They grabbed me. Why? I didn't know at the time. They just grabbed me. They threw me onto the police car. I got tased that time. That time they tased me because they said I wasn't complying. Ariel, are you okay? <laughs> What's wrong, baby? I'm okay. I'm alive, all right? Every day I get to see you. I get to do this, right? All right, come on. Let's calm down. Let's finish this, all right? You good? Hey, you're making me cry. Come on. You have to be careful when you're out there in this world because this world's not gonna always be honest or fair to you. I know, Sean, you got a little bit lighter than the rest of them, so it's a possibility you won't get stopped. Sound like you just pulled them over. Okay. If you were driving, cop pulls you over. Police gets out the car, comes to the window, what would you do? License and registration, please, ma'am. Why do you think I pulled you over? I don't know, tell me. When a police officer says something to you, don't, don't, you're black. You can't be looking at them saying, oh, I don't know, why don't you tell me? Well, I mean, that right there is giving them 
to them the license to pull you out of your car and physically harm you because it will be done. Don't get upset. Don't get sassy. Why did you pull me over? You don't have, I'm no, just, just follow instructions and stay calm. Okay. Do you think just being a police officer and pulling you over, regardless of if you feel you've done something or not, they should get your respect? That's a tricky question. The answer is yes. Yes. If you got to go to your wallet to get your ID, say, can I go reach in my back pocket to get my ID out? You could do what I do, and I show them my hands. So when they're walking up, they see I don't have anything in my hands. I'm Errol Sky Williams, and I have nothing that will harm harm you or hurt you. And what's the next place you put your hands when you're driving or on the steering wheel with your hands out? If at all possible, turn on, your phone on. on. And call someone and put it on speaker. But whatever you're doing, I want you to say what you're doing before you do it. You don't write any statements. Well, you have to write a statement. You don't have to write anything. You're a minor. I'm responsible for you. No one can tell you anything else. If it tells you to be quiet, be quiet. Do everything that you can to get back to me. I see it uh, weighing on you, and I don't want it to weigh on you. I'm just worried about Donovan. I'm worried about him now. What are you guys talking about? Our, our, her, my nephew and her cousin. I don't want him to be shot. I don't want him to go to jail. Um, you guys, if you could say anything to police, what would you say? Learn about people. Learn about their problems. Take some diversity training. I mean, it should be like an every, at this point, like a monthly requirement. You know, there's really nothing at this point that they could do that would make me feel any safer with them without them just point blank, clearing them all out, and starting all over from scratch. So don't always assume that all of them are bad. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but all you see on the news and in newspapers, and it keeps happening. It's just in a different way. It's like how people are like, you should forgive so-and-so, but they keep doing it to me. I, forget, I forgave them, but they keep doing it to me. It's, it gets harder and harder to forgive them. Okay, we are back. Kevin, you know what? I, I know there's probably gonna be a lot of pressure and we didn't discuss this, but I want you to go first and talk about, one, your experience as a parent of three daughters I mean, the majority of the kids who were talked to were young girls. Um, and just like, is this is this how you have trained your girls? Do you, what do you think about this? Yeah, first of all, that was hard to watch. It was sad and it also made me angry because I know they don't mean to, but what they're doing to those kids is, is really wrong. Is wrong. Um, they are causing a fear and a trauma that is so um what's the world looking for? Just over the top. So unnecessary. The, the, the idea that you're gonna get shot by the police is so rare and small to cause this kind of fear in these children, it's just wrong. But at the same time, it's sad because I know where it comes from. I understand why these people feel this way. That little girl said at the end, she's like, when I watch the news, I read the newspaper, it's happening all the time. And it's like, no, it's not happening all the time. They're making you feel like it's happening all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, 
but when it comes to my own parenting, so my oldest is 11. We haven't had any of these conversations yet. She's not close to driving. Um, but when that time comes, I'm just going to give, it's not just, it's not going to be in special instructions because she already knows to respect adults, to respect authority. That's not going to be, I'm not going to worry about her mouthing off, but I'm going to say, yeah, if you get pulled over, this is what you do. You, um, roll down your windows. So, cause the officers wants to, they want to see in the car, you have your license and your registration already out. So you don't have to look for it when they, when they get there and you just be polite and you just follow the instruction and answer their questions. It's that simple. It is, it is, you don't need to rehearse a statement. You don't need to, uh, be in fear of your life. It is simply treat them like a human being. They'll treat you like a human being and you move on. Um, the vast majority of people, 99.99999 continuous 9% of the people, when they get stopped from a tra- traffic incident, go on about their day. And so this idea that it is some mortal threat, when we know what the biggest mortal threat to some young teenage boy is, to, to, to pretend that it's the cops and get pulled over by the cops, it's just a fallacy. It's just wrong. And they've caused this fear in these children, which from my experience causes more issues because of the fear and the panic when they do get pulled over. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one incident. It was a guy, he was in the army and he got the, he got pulled over. And instead of pulling over, he kept driving because I get it. He wanted to get to a well lit area because he was afraid he didn't trust the cops. But the cops don't know that because it took him a long time to find somewhere to where he finally got off. And when they got off, um, the officer was telling him to put his hands out the window. But he wasn't. Because what we found out from his phone was that he was setting up his phone so he could see him everything. The officer is telling you, you, you've already been driving. You didn't stop. And now that you have stopped, he's telling you to put your, your hands out the window so you can see your hands. And now you're not doing that, mm-hmm. right? All because you're trying to set up your camera because you're scared, right? And now the officers are agitated. They're worried about their safety, you know? And it's just caused a scene that didn't need to be, that didn't need to happen. And, um, and that all came out of his fear of what was going to happen to him simply because he was black. Um, which was sad because as somebody who wears the military uniform, trust me, it it is it is like a brotherhood, even from law enforcement, right? Mm-hmm. If you have on a U.S. military uniform, they're gonna say, "Have a good day," right? Uh, I pulled up at a checkpoint one time. I was in uniform. He saw me. Said, "Oh, just keep going." He didn't check my ID. He didn't check anything, right? And so this idea that this guy was gonna get, uh murdered at a traffic stop by the cops just because he was black is irrational. And that irrational fear almost got him shot. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I can see it. It's going to, these kids, once they, those, those lights come on, everybody get a little nervous and the lights come, get you know, behind them because like, oh, I'm going to get a ticket. But if that fear gets to a certain point where it makes somebody freeze up, it makes them, you know, irrational. That, that could cause an incident and a scene that could have been avoided. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. 
in listening to it, I just think of the what gets etched in those young kids' minds and how they, it's kind of like you're saying, how they participate with others based on this fear that they have of something that is highly unlikely to occur. Now, I'm not saying that racism isn't real. And I'm not saying that the parents who are telling them these stories didn't actually have real incidents of racism. But I am asking the question of, well, what happened in your story? Is your story actually the way that you're telling it maybe? Or maybe you came across the racist cop. But that doesn't mean that you have to now train your child to believe that every person is racist. Or every person that wears the badge is racist. Because I really do want to know that woman's story that she said they took her to jail. But what? She said because um because oh, she didn't have no bumper. They didn't take her to jail. There's no criminal charge for lack of bumper where you get arrested. I'm just saying. Something was missing. <laughs> Maybe her license and registration. I don't know. That's wrong. Um, but but that's that's the thing too it's like everything can't be racist like like if you know that you might get pulled over because your bumper dragging behind your car why are you driving your car like and you can't the guy could have pulled you over because it was a it was a hazard it was a concern it could have been a fix-it ticket but we we can't say well you know what did she say Wherever she lived, half the people don't even have bumpers. Yeah. You know, like, Just you, can't, you can't validate your your wrong based on somebody else's wrong yeah. and then try and call it racism. Yeah. That video is very powerful for people who may have never been inside a Black household or hear Black people have that kind of conversation. Like, she told yes. the little light-skinned boy, well, you're a little lighter, so they might not pull you over. Like, that's real, y'all. Yes, and how how does that make him feel? Exactly. How is he? That's gonna make you feel some kind of way because now it's not my fault. I was born with this lighter skin, but what do I do now? Because I don't know what the two kids' relationship was, but let's say they're brothers or cousins or whatever, and that's their grandmother. Um, you know what is what? How does that perpetuate? this oppressor and oppressed dynamic or this dynamic where, you know, lighter skin is better than darker skin. Like there are so many conversations and dynamics that are happening within the community that we ourselves continue to push forward. Nobody else was pushing that forward except for her. Yeah. Yeah. And they think, they think, they think they're doing, they think they're doing their kids a service by kind of preparing them for the world. Um, but the reality is that's and that's in the way they're doing it is not a very helpful way. I would say that the way they're doing it just promotes more victimhood mentality. Oh, and absolutely. this this fearful mentality, one of the things that I truly believe is that in a lot of um like socioeconomically depressed areas, there are a lot of what I would consider community-based PTSD happening. And then you get police officers who also experience their own level of PTSD. And when those two things come together, that that's a volatile situation because everybody wants to get home at night. And so yep. 
and to one degree, these parents are trying to make sure that their kids just get home at night without understanding the fear that they're instilling in them and all of the other repercussions that come from that. And to a large degree, I don't I don't know that police officers also understand the emotional baggage that they wear when they come into a community. And then, bam, now here we are. I'm going to get home. And this one over here is, well, I'm going to get home, too. Yep. It doesn't yep. it doesn't always add up. And sometimes somebody doesn't get home. Yeah, that is. I heard Ice Cube say that he was talking about police officers in the inner city. And he's like, every day they approach the streets with this mindset of I'm going home tonight. Yeah. And, and sometimes that mindset leads them to do things that we would consider not right or whatever. But they have that mindset that they're going home. Yes. Um, and I, I mean, gosh, I, putting myself in their shoes, which I, I know I cannot, um, but if I if I use my imagination, I'm I'm sympathetic because when you come into some, not saying all, when you come into some neighborhoods, what are you met with? But the attitude, but the person running, but the drugs, the shooting, the, you know, all of these things. And you're met with that night after night after night. I think back to 2020 when it was like on site in some communities against police officers. Yeah. If I know that it, like out here in Compton, um, there was a female, I believe a female police police officer shot. She was sitting in her car and it just ran up on her. It's like the badge itself or the uniform itself puts you in this position of danger. Yeah, but yeah. you can best believe I'm going home at night. Yeah. You know what I, I mean? Yeah. But no, um, so as someone in the military, this it reminds me of combat situations, right? When you go and you deploy where you're in Afghanistan, Iraq, there's a sense of we're in this together. It's us against them, right? And I'm gonna look out for my brothers to my left and my right. The problem is when you bring that mentality to policing in a community, you're there to serve the public. But if you have that mm -hmm. mentality us against them, yeah, then it just leads to negative consequences. And so um, I've always felt that police officers who work in high crime, high and very violent areas, um, they need to constantly take like sabbaticals, they need to yep. constantly take time off mm -hmm. uh, and they pay time off or yep. reassign somewhere else. But when they're constantly in that all the time, it, it, it wears on you. Um, yep. And the the people in the community aren't citizens that you're protecting. They're potential targets, right? Mm -hmm. They're potential threats, I should say. And that's a tough way to develop a positive relationship between the community and the police yep. when you have that type of mentality. And yep. like I said, and it goes both ways. So we're looking at it from the police officer standpoint, but from the citizen standpoint, mm -hmm. it goes both ways because we just heard how they're feeling about the yep. police, right? Mm -hmm. And based on past things that have happened, based on things that are in the news. Um, and so they have their own, like she said, I want to make sure you come home to me. Yes. Right? Everybody has that mentality and it's almost like the police and the community have to come to the table and sit down and say, you are a human being. And we should have the same goal. Like truly the police's goal should be that I get home safe at night. And my mm -hmm. goal 
because I care for you as a human person would be that you get home safe at night as well. Yep. You know, like we don't, we're not trying to start this mob mentality where it's us against them. That's often how it shows up. I want to go back to the, to this whole video and them, you know, protecting their children and how that, um, how that can trickle down. But I first want to ask you how many times have you, I know you've probably been pulled over a lot, but how many times have you been, do you think you've been pulled over because you was black? Zero. Zero? Every time, zero. Every time I got pulled over, it's because I did something. I was speeding. I was speeding. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've never gotten pulled over just to get pulled over. I just never experienced that. I mean, I know it happens. I'm not going to you know, discredit anybody else, but yeah. it's never happened to me. Okay. Uh, for real. There are studies that show, you know, more pullovers of black men happen in the South, more unwarranted um, car searches happen in the South. Things like that don't typically tend to happen out here on the West Coast or in the Northeast. Um, And so I wonder if, you know, some of it is simply just regional and the historic relationship between black and white in certain regions of our country. But going back to this video and the trauma aspect, one, I think when we when we tell children, especially young children, these stories and we repeat these stories, it has a way of creating a trauma response in them to a degree. Um, and I'm not, you know, I know about like the ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences and things like that. And I know that those, that comes with an entire set of um of criteria in order for it to be a traumatic event for a child. But I do think that even if at least it's secondary trauma that a child could experience through the, through storytelling. And what's worse, Kevin, to me is when we now get um, these stories passed down. So like for me, I would hear my grandmother's stories and then my mother's stories would both come down to me. And I am sure that for many, like, depending on how old Big Mama is, you might be hearing Big Mama's story, Nana's story, your mama's story, and you're only nine years old. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it it, it passes down. I mean, we see in that video, that girl is crying because, well, the first one was crying because she was thinking about her cousin. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that one. And then the other little girl, she's crying because of what she's hearing her dad say happened to him. Yeah. These girls, they've got trauma. She has trauma because she's afraid of something um, to this degree. Um, I mean, after the Philando Castile um, shooting, Mm -hmm. I remember my my sister called me crying, just boo crying, telling me to be careful. Right. Um, the trauma is real. The fear is real. It it might not be warranted, but it is real. That's what people need to understand. Um, yeah, and it's it's a fear of death. It's a fear that my you know immediate parent or loved one caregiver is going to be harmed. Um, And these are all things that we know can produce trauma. It doesn't mean that it always will produce trauma or anything like that, but that it can. Um, And especially in a a secondary nature, like if it comes through more of the storytelling aspect, but I, and I'm not like a trauma expert or anything like that. I've read things, but 
I am concerned that as a community, we tend to lean so heavy on storytelling and on narrative that we are now leading children and young people away from truth and away from relationship with people who may not bear their same skin color. And it's it's just not a healthy place to be in as a as a people. No, it's not. Um, especially because other minority communities aren't having these conversations. They aren't in- instilling this type of fear in their kids of the police. You know, um, it is only in our communities that it is happening. And um, it is a perpetual cycle. And like I say, it, it flows down. These things flow down. And I think it's important for people to realize how Black people view these events. You know, the majority of the country views these things as that particular incident happened in that particular place. Mm-hmm. Black people tend to view things as a continuous line of history. Right. Yes. So what Big Mama went through, what Mama went through, what's happening now is one continuous thing. That's mm-hmm. why they can say it's never changed, y'all. It's never changed. This is yeah. still just like this is Emmett Till still happening. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and that's how that's how they think. That's how they feel and believe. And that's how they emotionally ingest all of these incidents that happen. So it doesn't matter how often it happens or doesn't happen. The fact that when it happens and the news plays it over and over in a loop, the black community, those memories get triggered. Even if they yeah. didn't experience that stuff themselves, even if this incident didn't happen to them, they view it as if it happened to them. Yeah. Right. And, and again, they feel like they're in danger. I I agree. And it's again, it's not to say that racism isn't real or that people aren't targeted, but the degree to which we have this conversation as if every time you get pulled over, it's only because of your yep. skin color is what I think really builds this um, this tension and this fear. And um, what I would consider at least a secondary trauma in young people, in, especially in our Black men, it builds an anger. I mean, I don't know if you see that, but one of the things that I see is you know, and it doesn't even have to be in regards to the police, but just black men toward whites overall. There's it, oftentimes um, an anger in regards to race and racial injustice. And does that make sense? Absolutely. I see it all the time. I see it all the time, especially on social media. Absolutely. Hey family, I wanted to take a minute and talk to you about Birmingham Theological Seminary. It's my seminary and it's a place that I extremely appreciate. They have small class sizes, very reasonable tuition, and professors who are committed to your education and to my education. If you are looking to extend your theological education and are considering seminary, I encourage you to check out Birmingham Theological Seminary. You can go to BTS. Dot education for more information. One of the things that's popular right now is the was it Oliver Anthony song? Have you have you listened to that? No. The rich man north of Richmond. Uh-uh. Oh, you got oh, okay. You okay? It's a very uh-huh. popular song. It's a like grassroots country song that went viral. And it's it's, it's not just, it's not um that in a small town song, right? No, 
No. Because that's my no. jam. I ain't going to lie. We, we, we've moved on from that. Sorry. <laughs> no, but it is a ba- it is a classic working class song written against the government, right? And there's been a lot of pushback from it. And the b- black people I've talked to online about the song, it's almost as if how dare a white person have a grievance, right? It's like they're privileged. Why is he complaining? And I'm like, well, because he's the poor working class. Like, mm-hmm. but that doesn't matter. He's white, mm-hmm. right? And it's almost like if if he's the if they're the oppressors, then why should we feel any empathy for them? Yes, right. Um, and so yeah, that whole the way we view white people in general definitely is affected from a standpoint of anger, distrust, uh, lack of empathy. The way we view them, see them, it is a character that we've created yeah. uh, of white people in general. And it is what the sad thing or the, the ironic thing is that is what we've complained about for years. They did to us. Yes. Right. Though mm-hmm. they say, Oh, that is, they have a character of black men, right? That's not true and real. And we fight against them. We say that's racism. That's, that's wrong. But then we turn around and do the same thing and we justify it based on what we've gone through, you know? And yeah. that's what I've tried to get people to see is like, if you just reverse that statement around, you'd be really angry at that statement. At one point in America's history, it was, you know, it was commonplace and quite um, well to do to speak ill of Black people. Yeah. And now the shoe has switched feet. And, you know, we are we are definitely looking down the other side and it is quite commonplace and well to do to speak ill of white people. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, what's so sad is that in the storytelling, not only are black people being bought into it, but white people are bought into it as well. Oh, I mean, absolutely. aside aside from the whole conversation, I feel like of white liberals and things like that. But um, I was just at a training and I was actually presenting and someone spoke up in the in the training and was like you know what if i brought in x amount of black men i can guarantee you that 100 percent of them would feel like they have been racially oppressed and we need to be you know doing our due diligence to stick up for them and to speak out against racism because they feel like they've been racialized they feel like they've experienced racism but do you hear the key word in that Uh uh-huh And, you know, oftentimes what we do is we create these narratives, but it's based a lot off of feeling. And I think that that's part of the issue with the entire storytelling is that a lot of times we want to make sure that you feel safe or that you feel, you know, or not even feel safe, but we want to tell you a story based off how we feel. Does that make sense? Like. I felt threatened. And so now I'm going to tell you my story so that you either don't feel threatened or that you know that you are going to be in a dangerous situation. It's just, it's hard because people don't, let me put it this way. When someone tells you a story and you buy into the story, no matter how much data is put forward, 
the data doesn't matter because they now have your heart based on the story. So yep. going up and telling one of those kids or one of those parents that the percentage of people who are shot and killed, you know, unjustly by police is probably something like less than 1%. If I'm, if I'm remembering correct from yep. your conversation with Eric Muldrow, they would be like, no way, no way. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of black men are killed every year by police. But it's it's that's not true. The data doesn't support that. And yeah. so then we have to have conversations of, well, what is true and what's feeling and how do we thread those things through without continuing to tell stories that are harming our kids, that are um, traumatizing our kids and leaving our kids um, siloed off. I feel like from other communities simply because of the color of their skin. Yeah. Um yeah, and it's really sad too, because I'm just gonna be honest. I look at it as this has intentionally been done to us. Hmm. Um, Say more. Say more. <laughs> when when you watch the news and the talking heads get on there and they recite these talking points, these same fear talking points, knowing the data, knowing that black men aren't being gunned down all over the country, but yet that's what they will say. And that's what they will tell you. And they will say things like, you know, black men are three times more likely to X, Y, Z. And they just leave it at that. And then they can talk, but then they get into a conversation about systemic racism. And then they talk about the history of racism. And they just tie it all together, throw, throw a random number out there, tie it to systemic racism and historic racism, and leave you with that. As if that is the reality of what's going on today. They never tell you what the number is. They won't tell you that it was 19 black people the whole year. Right. They're not going to tell you that they're just going to say three times more likely. Mm -hmm. No, they're not going to tell you that it was 19 black people and 27 white people that got killed. They unarmed. They got killed by the police that year. They're not going to say that, you know, um, and it just gets um, recycled over and over and over again. And I, like I said, I believe it's intentional. They, they, they need us to be emotional. They need us to be fearful. They need us to be afraid of the white supremacist boogeyman, right? Because they need us to go to the polls every four years. They need, that's why they come around to our churches every election season, right? That's why, you know, our president can say things like, you know, if you don't vote for me or you don't know you want to vote for me, then you ain't black, right? <laughs> Is is mm -hmm. is is why you know Al Sharpton can get up there in every high profile case and go to the funeral and give this civil rights speech again, um, and uh, and old Crump, the ambulance chaser, right? He's gonna get up there and make those same old, sing those same old arguments and songs, and this is justice, and we don't get justice, and and it's mm -hmm. just like they play this game because they benefit from it. Yeah, they benefit monetarily, they benefit politically, and they need the black community to be up in arms all the time. And so I've always, I've always uh, compared it to a wound that they won't let heal. Yeah, the minute, the minute it starts to scab up and it starts to heal, they rip it off. They want, they want it to bleed again. But you know, I, I would have to say, I, I think you're right. I think that there's benefit to the wound not healing. When I read critical race theory and introduct, 
in an introduction by Jean Delgado, no, Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanich, one of the tenets of critical race theory is storytelling. It's the, the narrative tenet. And how that even as a piece of this framework is very intentional and very structured and how there's benefit to narrative. Mm-hmm. And so it makes me wonder, kind of like you're saying, maybe this is intentional and intentional from those who are in positions of power, positions of, um, and I'm not talking about like, you know, whiteness or things like that, yeah. but just people who have who have the ear of certain people or, or certain communities, I will say that. And yeah. understanding understanding what narrative is and how to use it and the benefit that comes along with the narrative tenant. Now we, I would say black people overall, the black community is a very vocal community. We are a community that tells stories. We, we pass things down the lineage. Remember old uncle Jim Bob, when your mama told him this. So we're always telling and recounting stories, but I think that we have to consider the stories that we tell and what is the, the collective benefit of the story that we tell. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. And I think it's also, we tell stories, but we also have stories told about us and to us mm-hmm. through, through you know, like Hollywood, the movies mm-hmm. they choose to make about black people. Right. Mm. It's, it's usually rooted in oppression and slavery and overcoming and racism and all the it just it's a constant barrage of the same type of story over and over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. And we're just not ever allowed to, you know, leave it behind or move past it. Um, that was one Schindler's list. They made it one time and they moved on. We continue to make that movie over and over again about our oppression and our, you know, suffering and all of those things. Um, And it has an effect when we run to the movies to go see movies like The Help, you know, 12 Years a Slave and Mm. and all of these things. Amistad. Yeah. 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 It, it, It brings back all of those feelings and emotions and we relive them. Well, we lived them because we didn't live them originally. Yeah. Um, And we can talk about how our previous generations did not have this trauma. The Mm -hmm. people who came out of slavery weren't sitting there traumatized from their experiences. Yes. Our our grandparents' generation who went through the Great Depression and Jim Crow and all that, they didn't walk around with this oppression narrative on them. Mm -hmm. This is something that is more... I would say the baby boomer generation to Gen X millennials on down. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is a phenomenon that has happened in the last, I would say, 60 years or so. Um, mm-hmm. As to this mind shift change to where we're just perpetual victims with no agency to overcome, no agency to um, move past or, or or anything. We're just perpetual victims of white supremacy until something until white people change until the government change until you know that's another tenet of critical race theory <laughs> what what do you what do you think was the catalyst for that though because i don't i don't think i disagree i'm just wondering what like where can we point back to an event 
like a lot of people will point back to the institution of the welfare state and things like that. But I'm like, what can we, is, is there a place? Or I wonder if there was a turning point because I agree, like it right after, you know, the civil war, when you look at reconstruction and that, that, that time period, right after that, the great migration, and all of that, people weren't sitting home twiddling their thumbs talking about, you know, I'm a black millionaire, but I'm afraid to leave my house. Yeah. These people had nothing or very little were working hard in the middle of Jim Crow, in the middle of, you know, the the slander, the hatred, the oppression, the true oppression. Yeah. Yeah. Um, man, you're trying to get me in trouble. No, go but- ahead. It is. It is off code. Honestly, I think. I think if you just look at the trajectory of things, it goes back to the civil rights movement. It goes back to the revolutionary spirit, I call it, of the 60s. It it goes back to mobilizing black people to rise up. Um, And in that it was very successful in changing legislation. And because it was so successful in changing legislation, it just became the way that we felt needed things need to get done. And so we've never left that playbook, right? It is cause cause disruption, mm-hmm. cry injustice, and and play on the guilt of the populace to get what we want. Right. Wow. And it's, it is constantly using our grievance as our political leverage. Right. And so therefore, we can never give up our grievances. Wow. Because when we give up our grievances, we give up the political leverage we believe we have. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's what it goes back to. Um, it goes back to the time of the civil rights movement and what that movement started within black, because before the civil rights movement, Black people were not seeking revolution, right? Um, they were seeking change. They were seeking justice. Mm-hmm. They were willing to work within the system to change things, to change people, to, you know, um, to do their own thing, right? Yeah. We had our own businesses. No, it's, it's, it's so funny. Like, people talk about all these things we need to do today in, in the Black community and, like, we had all those things. We had our own doctors, our own lawyers. We had our own bank, no, banks. We had our own businesses. Like we had it. We had the black community, our gro- own grocery stores. And what changed that was this idea that we needed to integrate. And once we saw integration and we started having the ability to go to you know, the white man's store, as we'll call it, Black businesses start to die because that seemed to be more attractive over there than what we had, hmm. you know? Um, and so, yeah, that, and um, that's, that's, it's sad to say, but that's just really where, where it started. And it's, and it's, and it's one thing because we really benefited from one aspect of it in the civil rights movement and the civil rights act. But I've always asked the question, what did we give up to achieve that? Yeah. And, and uh, we we gave up a lot of agency and a lot of self-reliance. And we became simply dependent on the government providing for us. Uh, that's where the war on poverty comes in. And, you know, 
got single mothers to basically marry the government, you know, and no man in the house rule and the out of wed out of wedlock birth rate went from twenty five percent in nineteen sixty five to seventy five percent in nineteen eighty five. Yeah. You know, it tripled. Um and and this is the thing too, the white rate tripled as well. That's what people don't realize. The white rate went from eight percent to twenty four percent. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just that it affected black people, just that it affected us exponentially because yes. we were already at 25%. Um, and so that's 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 what people, it's hard to say that because the civil rights movement is something that we can never say anything negative about, mm-hmm. right? We can never say, you know what? I think they messed up here. They didn't get this right. And the lasting effects of that have just simply been we are in this cycle where we are constantly looking to the government to save us. We're constantly looking to, to the government to provide for us. Um, and the government, Which is the system or the, the man, system. the white man, white, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And the, the system, the government, at least one part of it, one party of the government has said, yes, we will save you. Just vote for us. Mm-hmm. You know? We, there's more work to be done, you know? Always, <laughs> always. Yeah, and we run out, we line up, and we, we 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 vote, and we organize for them, and we do all these things. They don't want us to lose our grievance. But I mean, is that not like, when I, when I hear you say, talk about like the grievance and that you have to have a grievance, what I, t- what I think about is like, you have to have a proletariat. So critical race theory with foundations in Marxism would require that there be a an oppressed category. But I mean, that that would be, and this is a whole nother side tangent, that would be all the critical theories. All the critical theories are going to require some form of oppressed person. There has to be some problem. And the way that it shows up, the way that it problematizes things is through this idea that there is a power differential. There's a, pro- a power problem. And one group has the power. One one group um, does not have the power. And so if you really want to create change, you have to give the power to those who do not currently have power or do not have as much power. And so, I don't know, part of, part of what, what you're saying to me just sounds like that entire framework of um we we need you to have a grievance so that we can continue to fight for emancipation to get power away from this group and make sure that we overturn society basically overthrow society and the capitalistic structure to be able to give power to another group absolutely black black victimization is just a tool it's just Mm -hmm. a tool for political power and it's a matter and it's a question is who's wielding that tool yeah. Um, and I think you pointed out, and it's quite obvious, look throughout history and who's behind all these different movements. It is it is a Marxist critical theory movement that has locked, latched itself on originally to the black community. Now it's the alphabet community, we'll call it. <laughs> well, you know? anything, I think, gosh, I, I don't think that you can have uh, a LGBTQ plus movement without the black community. No. They don't hitch themselves onto the black community and onto our struggle and our story. It, it won't succeed because our story is a story of civil rights. Our yeah. story is a story of I was truly born this way. Don't kill me. I was born this way. 
Yes. And that's why you get their mantra of that they were born this way. They, mm-hmm. they you have to have even with the the whole Black Lives Matter and the the Black Lives Matter flag being the trans flag, you have to associate the sexuality or the gender conversation with the race conversation in order for it to truly have any any power, any steam behind it. Yeah. And there's a reason we call it grievance studies, right? You go to college and you get black studies, you get, you know, uh, women's studies, you get mm-hmm. the LGBTQ, you know, studies. They're called the grievance studies because you're simply um, learning about grievances and how to express grievances and how to apply um, how to achieve social justice in these yeah. grievances, right? Um, and we all know that it's very loaded language, but mm-hmm. the point is they need you to continue to have a grievance. Yeah. And when you see things like this in this video, and like I say, that girl said, when you turn on the news, this is what we see all the time. It's no accident that they're feeding us this all the time. It's because mm-hmm. they need us to maintain our grievance so that we will mobilize for them. Right? And narrative and storytelling is a way, it's a tool to be able to promote people's grievances. So when we are talking about narrative or storytelling, we have to remember that these things are intentional. It's not just that you know, people are retelling the same story over and over and over again, especially in the media. I'm not talking about your grandma, your mama and them, but our government, our media, they understand that storytelling is a tool. Those who founded things like critical theory or contemporary critical theory, as Neil Shimby would call it, critical race theory, they understand that storytelling and the power of storytelling is powerful to shift a community. Yeah. And one of the things that people like you and I, we care about truth, right? And we're trying to convince people of what is true. The other side doesn't care about what is true because they understand that the only thing that matters is narrative. If they can just get the narrative out there, if they can say it over and over and over again, if they can show you a video over and over and over again and get that narrative out there, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. Yeah. Right? And because they understand they've gotten the emotion. Yep. And that is where, to some degree, we lose the battle because we're trying to give facts. We're trying to give win arguments. They're not even trying to win the argument. They don't even want to mm-hmm. debate. They, yeah. they see no need in that because they're not trying to win the argument. They yeah. simply want to win the narrative. And they yeah. win the narrative by controlling the media, you know, the published media, you know, social media. And once they control the narrative, it doesn't matter what's true or not. It only matters what people believe. Yep. And so. I agree. We are at time. Anything else you want to say about the video before we sign off? No, it just it just broke my heart to see those little girls cry. I mean, I got three daughters. Mm-hmm. And see, mm-hmm. I'm going to say, I have empathy for the parents. I know why they're doing it. They have good intentions, but they are really harming their kids and creating a cycle of trauma. Um, and we, we, we're we quick to acknowledge the trauma, but we view the trauma as being conducted from what's outside of us. 
Yeah. We view the trauma as being, you know, what they're doing. And we don't look at how we're perpetuating the trauma ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I hope people take away from is be thoughtful of how we're having these conversations with our kids and what we're passing down to them. Uh, And make sure we're not putting our own baggage onto them, you know? Mm -hmm. So. I agree. Again, um, you know, one of the things that you said early on really caught my attention. You were talking about your oldest daughter. And even though she's 11, she's not driving yet. Um, although she's tall enough to drive, don't play no games. <laughs> she's tall for real. Um, you aren't setting her up to drive as a Black woman. You're setting yeah. her up to drive as a responsible driver who respects yeah. authority, yeah. who abides by the law, who isn't about to mouth off and, you know, shake her wig off because she, you know, she got pulled over. Getting pulled over is, a for some, a part of life. Uh, I've been pulled over twice, but and I was in the wrong both times. Um, Just twice? Man, you be a teen and two driving Miss Daisy. Just... No, I don't. I got a speeding ticket once. And then um, I made an illegal U-turn, but that was a whole nother story. I had to get out. And in that, in that making an illegal U-turn in the middle of South Central, I explained to the police officer why I made the illegal U-turn. And then he then escorted me to my next destination with his lights and sirens on, white police officer. Mm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, um, but I, I just think it's important, like, people need to understand that police wield power and authority. It has been vested upon them by the state or by your municipality. And that's not nothing to play with. And not because you're black and not because you're white, but because they have a job to do and they are meant to protect and to serve, but they also, you know, like have the law backing them up. And so we don't want to, put ourselves in positions where now here I am mouthing off and I'm sideways and all of this and causing somebody else to be fearful of their life either. You know, Mm -hmm. like we respect authority. And as believers, we have biblical warrant to raise our children to be respectful, to be kind, to listen, not to mouth off. You know, how do we respect authority? It's important. And yep. so I, I completely think that raising young people, regardless of skin color, to respect authority, to understand when a police officer is approaching your car and when a police officer approaches your car, there are just some basic things you need to do. Not because you black, not because you white, but because you have someone approaching your vehicle and it is a serious matter. He doesn't know what he's going to walk up on or she doesn't know what she's going to walk up on. So don't cause them anxiety by being a fool. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, like I say, I roll, I, I roll my windows down so they can see in the vehicle. I give them, I want them to feel as at ease as possible. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, and this is another thing I will tell people too. I'll tell my daughters this. You're never going to win that argument on the side of the road. That's yeah. not the place to, if you don't feel like you've done anything wrong, that is not the place to win. You, that, you go to a court of law, you show up yeah. to court and you give your case. You are mm-hmm. not going to win that on the side of the road. Yes. So it, it does no good to sit there and argue about what you believe you did or didn't do, because at the end of the day, you're you're not going to win that battle. Right. Yeah. Now. So. Yep. 
All right. That is it for us. You guys, thank you so much for being with us again. We will see you in two weeks.